The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Just a moment, we'll be reading the scripture. Uh, today, I uh, invited Chris Broadus. Uh, Chris is a student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, just north of Raleigh. He is from Florida. He is a part of what's called the Hunt Scholars Program. It's a, an ambitious uh, program that's been put in place in the last few years at Southeastern to address moving young men to pastoring churches. Um, it's, 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 it's slim. We take for granted at Parkwood as the number of young men we've seen go into ministry, how few people are replacing retiring pastors. And Southeastern's trying to do something about that. So Chris entered as a freshman. In five years, he will accomplish a bachelor's degree and a master's of divinity degree. The first two years, he was a college student. Now he is a seminary student for his last three years. He's done 12 hours of school this summer, studying alongside, uh, working with me and others as a part of the staff and learning some practical experience. So today, uh, he steps to the pulpit to do what Paul instructed Timothy to first do. And some of you think in your mind, preach the word. It's not the first thing he told him to do. The first thing he told him to do was to give himself to the public reading of scripture. It is no light task to read publicly the Word of God. So I've invited Chris today to read the 11th Psalm before us as we enter into our message. So I invite you to stand as we acknowledge and revere this is the Word of God. Thank you. It's good to be with you this morning. Psalm 11 to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that your word is true and that you are righteous and that you alone are worthy of us to take refuge and to hide our soul. So though around us things seem to be moving faster and faster into a crumbling society, may we find ourselves as a people who seek and find refuge in you. Take your word now and apply it to our hearts and lives. Give courage, give peace, and give help to your people. And Lord, for those in this room who have never looked to Christ and believed, Use this word this day to save those who are outside of the faith, to call them to repentance and to trust in Christ. We plead and pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
The main idea of this text is that the Lord alone is righteous and does what is right. Last week, toward the end of the message, I mentioned the separation of children from their parents and the immigration issue and what's going on at the border. Gladly, this week, the president and administration recognized this wrong and enacted a policy that would no longer separate children from their parents when they're being detained. Some of you questioned me, as I knew you would. When you break the law, you ought to face the consequences of the law. But when you enact the law, you should do so in a right manner. And thank God that this is being seen as the right thing to do to detain the children with their parents. And you say, what does this have to do with the sermon? How about leaving that alone? It has everything to do with the sermon. Listen carefully. Sometimes, even though we're trying to do the right thing, we do the wrong thing. You know why? Because we're not righteous. Here's the truth of this text. God is righteous and he always does the right thing. God will never have to recant and repent of what he has done. The Lord alone is righteous. That's intentional. And I would add a word to my sentence now, and always does what is right. Psalm 11 is theology, meaning it is teaching us who God is, that God is righteous. But it's further than just teaching us a truth of who God is. Psalm 11 is applied theology. It's answering the question, what does the truth that the Lord God alone is righteous and does what is right have to do with our actual lives, particularly when we face difficulty? Before we get into the psalm, let's consider a few details. It begins by saying it's to the choir master of David. This means this psalm was intended to be sung by God's people and to be repeated over and over again to remind them of the truths of this psalm. It's referring specifically to a time of difficulty in David's life, either when he's being pursued by Saul or Absalom. Even though the text does not give us the detail of the exact timing, we can understand that this was a low point in David's life. Things appeared as if they were falling apart. So this is a lament psalm or a psalm of lament. But the emphasis of the psalm is not on the lament. The emphasis of the psalm is on confidence in the Lord. So what can we glean from David's applied theology? Two points today. Number one, the Lord alone is our refuge when things seem to fall apart. This is a clear confession by David in the face of confusion. He says in verse one, in the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark to the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? Or what can the righteous do? So we need to deduce from this text what's going on in David's life at this moment. It's that someone or possibly a group of people, likely David's closest advisors, are saying to David, you are in a dire situation, you are about to be killed, so run for your life. 
What's being put before David instead of trusting the Lord is self-preservation. Look out for yourself. So there's an assumption behind this advice. Sounds very similar to what I hear around us today. It assumes that safety is the most important thing. I don't know how many times I've heard Christians lead their prayer with, God keep us safe. I don't know how many times when I've been about to take a group of people somewhere to do something for the sake of the gospel, where I've been asked by parents or participants, is it safe? Safety has become a preeminent issue among people, and it always has been. What we must do is be careful that we don't make self-preservation an idol, the most important thing. And we know that it becomes an idol when we cease to take any risk for the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying we ought to be like the redneck whose famous last words were, hey, y'all, watch this. I'm not talking about foolish risk. I'm talking about calculated risk for the sake of Christ, that we follow him wherever he leads us. We know that Christ told us to take up our cross and follow him. That's implied difficulty in our lives. The only way we're ever gonna take up the cross and follow Christ is if we trust the Lord. So even when things seem dire, we make the Lord our refuge. It says in verse two, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Most of you have probably never had a loaded weapon pointed at you. It's a frightening situation. But here's what you need to understand, what Ephesians 6 teaches you. That you have an adversary who at this moment has a loaded bow. And in fact, the implication of Ephesians 6 is he's released those fiery darts. And the only way that you deal with them is the shield of faith. That you trust the Lord as he releases them to you. Then it says this question in verse three. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And let's be careful here that we understand what the word foundations means. It is not speaking of the Lord who is referred to as our foundation. It is not referring to the scripture, which is our foundation. It is not referring to, as the New Testament saying, Jesus is the cornerstone on which the firm foundation of our faith rests. The foundation that is being referred to here are the foundations of society. So what the Psalm is saying, as society is crumbling or when society is crumbling, that God's people are vulnerable to being conformed to what's, being, what's going on around them or to being persecuted because of who they are. So let's just talk about some crumbling parts of the foundation of our society that have happened just in the last few years. Society for centuries has been built on the foundation 
that marriage is the basic building block of human culture. For centuries, human culture, regardless of Christian or whatever, has been built on the foundation that men are men and women are women. All of this is now called into question in the world we live in. We are tampering with and ripping apart the very foundations of how a society functions. Let me just say it clearly. We haven't thought through what this is going to mean 50 or 100 years from now. We are reacting to individuals in the moment and what individuals want, and we're not thinking about what this is going to mean for the whole. Now, what has this meant for Christians who have stood up and said something similar to what I'm saying right now? Let me read a couple passages of Scripture. Ephesians 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, this is how, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now think about this. When something bad happens, the pundits of the world ask the question, where's God? Noticed? But in the meantime, they want to redefine everything God said and say what God said is evil and what we're saying is good, so let's reformat the whole thing. Now the question comes then, in the midst of this, what do the righteous do? Or what do God's people do in this moment? What do we do when the foundations are destroyed? The answer is in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. Listen, friends, you better learn this fast. If you take refuge in the society, <laughs> you're in trouble. As society crumbles around you, you, you you're, you're holding on to something that's disintegrating in your hands. The place that we run and we hide is we take our refuge in the Lord. So you got to ask this question. Why is the Lord our refuge? Or why is God worthy of being the refuge of his people? The answer is the Lord alone is righteous and does what is right. Verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 9, verse 7, you just flip back a page. It says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. So that means as far as you can go back now and as far as you can go forward, the Lord inhabits his holy temple and is seated forever on his throne. And from his throne, he has established justice. And you say, okay, well, that just means his people. Well, you better read the rest of the Bible. Because Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Now, often when we think of throne, we think of simply a king who is seated on his throne. But when you take the context of this passage of God seated on his throne and righteousness, you must also see that God is both king and judge. 
that he's not just seated passively on the throne. He is exercising his supremacy. He's not a distant God way out. He's exercising his dominion over everything of the world. He's not inactive. You see in this text that he gazes, that he sees, that he tests men, which leads ultimately to his judgment. So you ask this question, why does God occupy the throne? The answer is verse seven. For the Lord is righteous. There's never a moment in the past, the present, or the future when that is not true. Present tense, the Lord is righteous. That means the Lord acts in accordance with what is right and that he himself is the final standard of what is right. He is unchanging. He is true and right and just. So what he does is in accordance with who he is. Therefore, the Lord does what is right. Here's the implication of the rest of this verse, or the verses. He does what is right in relation to us. Now let's look carefully at what he's going to do and what he is doing. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. 1 John 3, 20 says, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. So right now, while we're seated here, as husbands are hiding things from their wives and wives from their husbands and children from their parents, here's what I know. God knows it all. There is nothing hidden in this room from him. Nothing. The Lord sees. He sees and he knows everything. And then this, this is an image in the scripture. His eyelids test the children of man. That means not, not that God has a trouble seeing, but the image is he's, he's squinting his eyes down. He's looking intently. He tests the children of man. That means all of humanity. And then it says something very particular here. The Lord tests the righteous. Now, what does that mean in the context of Psalm 11? Here's what it means. Listen carefully. When times of affliction come, how people respond reveals who they are. It reveals whether or not we truly are God's people. Whether or not we truly trust him. Whether we truly obey him and do what he has said, do what is right. Now for those who do not, it says in the end of verse five and end of verse six, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, we defined who the wicked were a few weeks ago. The wicked are those who refuse to do what God has said. You don't get to define wicked. 
as mass murderers or people like Hitler. The wicked are those who refuse to do what God has said, who ignore what God has instructed. This is a quote. This is going to rock some of you. In reference to this phrase, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence and let him rain coals on the wicked and fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Quote, you may need to revise your theological cliches about God hating the sin and loving the sinner. All this tells us that God is more than a mere three-letter word the God of the Bible is not a formless blob of celestial protoplasm. He's not some cosmic jello with a sickly smile. He has a nature and a character that responds to you and I both positively and negatively. He is not the grand relativist. He's just going, it's all right. Let the flaming passion of these words sink down to your soul and see how different the living biblical God is from the sentimental deity that men have conjured up. There is nothing bland about the God of the Bible. Now there ought to be an illustration that flies into your head when you hear, let him rain coals on the wicked and fire and sulfur and scorching wind. What ought to be coming to your mind from the Bible? What, what image, what, what point in time should be in your head? Sodom and Gomorrah. Now what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? The foundations of society crumbled, collapsed, and God rained fire and sulfur on them. Don't forget this. He saved Lot. That as bad as things get, God is still a God of salvation. And you say, okay, you're preaching that hellfire and brimstone Old Testament stuff. Have you noticed? Here's one of the ways you can show that we've moved away from a righteous God. It is now evil to preach the way I'm preaching. I don't know how many people have come up to me after and said, I can't believe you preach on hell. Okay, well, I, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And, and, and one of the reasons our society is going down the tubes is because preachers are scared to say what I'm saying. Now, the question is, is this in the New Testament? Well, it just happens to be. Let's turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter one. And I just want you to notice how clearly parallel this text is to Psalm 11. 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. And by the way, I suggest just, I'm gonna go back to the Psalm and reference it. You just stay in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I'd underline that in my Bible. <laughs> and write Psalm 11 in the, in, in the margin. So you're connecting the dots here. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. <laughs> so the illusion of safety of New Testament Christians 
boom, just explodes right there. You've been considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which you also suffer, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to, those, to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When, here's when relief's coming. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That means Christ is coming and he is going to enact justice when he comes. And he's going to enact justice on those who do not know God. And then it singles out and says, and those who do not obey the gospel. So that means regardless of where people are, Romans 1 teaches that God has revealed enough in creation to let them know there is a God. And they've rejected that and God's gonna judge them. But there is a particular judgment here and it's those who sat in churches like this and heard the gospel week after week after week and year after year and rejected it. That's gonna be an awful day for you. When Christ comes and you have to answer for the rejection of that which you clearly heard, it says they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So I had to ask this question, what's he waiting for? And here's the answer. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. You hear me, friend, in this room who's rejecting Jesus. He is withholding this moment for you. Repent and believe. Turn to Christ today. It is God's patience toward you that this has not yet happened. Verse seven. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is another great quote. There are many interested in safety, but only saints care about fellowship. That makes me tremble. At the way the gospel has been presented is nothing but a fire insurance from hell. Somebody just asked me in the bathroom about something they heard taught where somebody basically said, all you gotta do is believe the facts about Jesus. Doesn't matter how you live your life from that point. As long as you believe the facts about Jesus, you're in. That's just safety. It's not what the Bible teaches. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter two. Again, a parallel text explaining verse seven to us. He loves righteous deeds. Now, if you just read that in isolation, you could draw this conclusion. I've got to do good things to get to God. Now, I ask you this question. Is that what the Bible's teaching in whole? The answer is no. So you've got to interpret that verse in light of the whole. And 1 John chapter 2, 28 and following explains what's happening here. It says, Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, that coming we just read of in 2 Thessalonians 1, when he appears, we have, may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
Here's why God loves righteous deeds. Because righteous deeds come from him, not you. The only way you ever live out any form of righteousness in your life is that you have been born of God. You've been born again by the grace of God, saved by his grace, whom the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, who is working out through you your salvation with fear and trembling and gives evidence of the fact that you have been born again. Now, this is the love of God. Verse one, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It's not just when he comes, we're gonna be God's children. We're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will, shall see him as he is. We're gonna see him in fullness. That's why it says, the upright shall behold his face. We shall see him. Here's another misconstrued form of Christianity that goes on around this part of the world. Yeah, I can't wait to get to heaven to see my grandma. Really? That's why you want to go to heaven? Let me tell you who's going to be there on the throne. It's Jesus. And if he's not your primary motivation, you don't know salvation. You've been saved to know him. The byproduct is if grandma knew him, she's gonna be there too. Praise God. And you'll see her again. But the primary motivation is to behold his face. So how about now? How about your daily life? until that moment comes. This is really the point of my application today. In my daily life, especially in times of greatest need, so I'm not isolating only greatest need, just in your day-to-day -day life, am I giving clear evidence that I believe that the Lord is righteous and does what is right by taking refuge in him alone? So as, as things crumble around us and go from bad to worse, I ask the question, what can the righteous do? How is it that we give evidence that we believe the Lord is righteous and does what is right? Here's the answer. We give ourselves to prayer. Now, this, I'm, I'm concerned right here. I, there, there's an urgency in me as I come to this moment. There's an urgency in me because here's what I see in the modern church. No need for it. like to study our Bibles, like to know, get, like to sing. But th there's not this sense of an urgent need of prayer. I'm in Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but the one whom every respect have been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the writer of Hebrews is appealing to the understanding of the Old Testament and the life of these suffering Christians. And he's saying to them, in the midst of your difficulty, remember this, you have a great high priest 
who is making intercession for you, Jesus, the Son of God. So make him your refuge. Hold fast to your confession. And remember this. He has saved you by your grace, but he understands this. You're still struggling. There's so many of you in this room, the reason you don't pray is you think you gotta get it all together before you pray. Folks, the reason you pray is because you don't have it all together. That's why you run. You come into the presence of God and you come and he understands who you are. But you don't come being flippant about that. You come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace. So we don't come like the Pharisee in Jesus' story saying, hey, you know, I I tithed this week or I read my Bible every day, so now I have permission to come to you. Or, or this is when it really gets wicked and when you say, well, God, I've been in church my whole life and why aren't you doing this? People have said to me when, when there's a, critically ill or a terminally ill person with cancer who's been walking with Jesus our life, why would God do that to them? You don't understand the world. You live in a sinful, broken world. Cancer's gonna take many of us in this room out. We're all going to, one way or the other, or Jesus is gonna come back. The question is, in the midst of cancer, is God your refuge? Are you going to trust him? Are you going to cling to him? Now, here's where I sense the greatest urgency. And I'm going to say some pretty strong things for the next few minutes. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just trying to be honest here. As society is crumbling... We know this, that the church in America is shrinking fast, quick. And it's becoming older and older and older. The majority of churches you go to today, if you go in there, is predominantly older people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Very few young people. Now, there are multiple reasons for that. one of the reasons is as society crumbles, young people are now understanding that it costs something to follow Jesus. I say this with lament in my heart. For the first time in the last five to 10 years, we are seeing young people grow up in this church and adamantly say, as they leave home, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Christ. It is disturbing. They understand, unlike the world you grew up in that basically affirmed the Christian worldview of what it means to follow Christ. At the same time, at the same time, there's tremendous pressure on young adults to compromise the Christian faith and to make it more palatable to the world around them. So what are we gonna do? In God's sovereignty, we didn't plan it this way, it just dawned on me in the last two weeks. In God's sovereignty, we called the church today to prayer for our children. 
And here's what I'm asking you to do tonight. It's summer, and there are a lot of things you could do. And maybe you've got something unavoidable you planned today. Whether you have children in your home that are preschoolers, elementary age, middle schoolers, high schoolers, or college students, I am calling on you to come here today and plead for your children. If you have adult children who are not following Christ, if you have grandchildren who are not following Christ, I'm imploring you to come tonight and to plead for your children. If you are a member of this church, wake up and see the gift God has given us. We're not a gathering of senior adults. There are children everywhere. Pastor Ben reported to you, 400 of them came through here this week. We have a collective responsibility to come together and plead for our children. We cannot just turn them over to the world. We raise them in the nurture and the admonition of Christ. We present and plead with them over the gospel and we bring them before the throne of grace. Why? Ephesians 6. So that two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope before us. We have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Let me illustrate this way. In 2000, 2001, we went on our first adult mission trip to, to Alaska. I had dinner with a boat captain. Now, th these are where we were down on the Aleutian Islands. These are the people that do that, uh, the, the, the crab boat people, those radical, you know, people on television you see them. Th these, are, these are the most interesting people I've ever been around in my life. Everything you see on TV and more, that's who they are. And I'm having dinner with this guy and he's telling me about in the Bering Sea, you gotta be prepared because a storm's on you at any moment. He said, the best thing to do if you know it's coming is to get in a safe harbor. But if not, you got one choice. You drop the length of your anchor chain and you strike it to the bottom of the Bering Sea and you ride the storm. Without your anchor, you'll capsize. Now that just seems counterintuitive to me. I don't totally understand it. I would not go out on the Bering Sea anyway, okay? I'm not in the water. But when that man explained that to me, Hebrews 6 came alive. That whether you're in the storm or not, but particularly when you're in it, you cast your anchor on Jesus. So parents, grandparents, cast your anchor to Jesus. And here's what we plead for our children, that they will cast their anchor to Christ, that they will believe that he alone is the refuge, 
It's not what the world's promising them. And listen, parents, be careful. Be careful. Don't make the anchor sports or grades or careers. I'm not saying all those things are bad. Just don't make them the anchor of your family. Don't make that the anchor of your children because they hear you. Here's what I've found. Children most often choose the anchor their parents choose. And hear me, cultural Christianity is gone. It's gone. Kids aren't going to go to church because that's the right thing to do. That's gone. Only Christ followers in this culture are going to pursue Christ. So let us cast our anchor to Christ and plead and plead to God that the next generation will do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I come now and I pray and plead on behalf of those who through persecution in their own home, at work or among their friends, have been tempted and maybe even have taken steps to flee to the mountains, to the safe place that the world tells them to go. I pray that there be firm faith and resolve today to take our refuge in the righteous Lord, to trust him in his word, to look to the one who gave his life on the cross for our sin, was buried and died and three days rose again, Lord and King. May we repent of our sin and look to Christ today and cast our anchor upon him, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So Lord, for those who've been tossed about, I pray they'd look to Christ. And for those who are concerned of those whom they love that are tossed about, that they would look to you and plead before you. Now, as we sing about it, may we go to the throne above and make our perfect plea to the one whom only we can come to, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.